0: Well, today we're starting our vision series, uh, which, as Andy mentioned, we do every year, and uh, it's an exciting time for us um, to be brought together as a congregation again around our vision. Uh, there's been a lot of changes in our church over the last three years, a lot of changes in pretty much every church. And so it's important for us to land together on who we are, what we believe, what is What is unique about our church? What do we feel called to do? And so in this vision series, uh, we're gonna have three sermons that go along with our vision statement, uh, which is proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. And today I'll be talking about proclaiming Christ. And you'll see we're still in Luke. um, And so what I've done is I've taken the final passage in Luke. So in some ways, this is kind of like the, the closing sermon of the past series on the kingdom of God. In another way, it's a launching into our vision that is intentional to show you that everything we do as a church is launched out of the word of God. We are bringing the kingdom of God on earth through the local church as we proclaim Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. And so today I'm gonna talk about proclaiming Jesus Christ. So proclaiming Christ in some ways is not a unique attribute of a church. In fact, if you're not proclaiming Christ as a church, then you're not a church. Okay, proclaiming Christ makes a church a church so that if you remove the gospel, you remove the proclamation of the gospel away from a church, it ceases to be a church. But even though it is elementary to what a church is, it is so important to our church that we want to put it front and center. Proclaiming Christ is who Trinity Park is, and we do it in redemptive community among neighbors and nations and so today we're going to talk about proclaiming christ And this is not surprising for us that we would hear this in a church that proclaiming christ is important but honestly if we can just take a moment and and take a step back and ask ourselves the question am i excited about proclaiming christ often the answer is somewhere in between not really and sometimes i mean We know that we should. We're not surprised to hear a sermon on it. But for some reason, it doesn't really resonate that deeply with us and our experience. And I think in order to understand why that is, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our view of God? Who is he? Let me ask you a question. Imagine God uh, in heaven, and you come, you personally come to his mind. What are his feelings about you? How does God feel about you? Often when people answer this question honestly, one of the first ideas that comes to mind in terms of how does God feel about you is that God feels disappointed. He feels disappointed with you. That's how some people feel. That when you come to God's mind, that he has these feelings of disappointment, like you're just not measuring up. Others would say, I feel like God is angry with me, or maybe they've been in church long enough to know that's probably not true, but they might say that, God, I feel like God is frustrated with me, that I need to be making progress faster than I am as a Christian. Now, what's motivating about sharing a gospel with other people when you feel like the gospel is that God is frustrated with you? You feel like God is angry with you you feel like you've disappointed God. What's exciting about telling other people about a God like that? If we're honest, that's that's often what we carry around with us. And what does that do to us if we feel like God is primarily disappointed with us? What is our motivation then to serve him? Is it so that one day he might not be disappointed with me? One day he might not be angry with me. And we get our, our theology about God and how he feels about us needs to be radically challenged. I want to remind you in our Luke series of the parable of the lost sons, the two sons that were lost. And when the younger brother returns after squandering everything, what is the father's emotion? Is God angry with him? Is God disappointed with him? Is that God's primary emotion? No, it's not. God is so incredibly energized that his son has come home. In fact, he's been waiting for this moment that he throws his arms around the son. He throws a party, and yet the elder brother is pouting outside because he just doesn't understand the love of God, the love of a father that would welcome a son back who has not performed well. He doesn't get it. And oftentimes we are standing outside the party like the elder brother because we just don't feel like that we understand God's love, we don't. We don't. We we hear about it, but we don't really embrace it for ourselves. And until we do that, until we understand God's love for for sinners and sufferers, we will not be very excited about proclaiming Christ. And so this this passage in Luke twenty four is incredibly encouraging because what Jesus is doing here is he's meeting his disciples in a moment when they have utterly utterly failed they have totally failed if the gospel if God's love for us is based on our performance then this story goes completely differently so we're going to look and see what is God's what, what are the feelings God has about you when you are on his heart and we find that out here in Luke 24 and it will encourage us to proclaim Christ So as we encounter Jesus here, let's ask the question, is Jesus disappointed with the disciples? Is he angry? Is he frustrated with them? What's on his heart? The first thing Jesus says to the disciples and to us is, peace be to you. Peace be to you. This is the gospel when we've failed. The gospel when we've failed. We're just gonna look at five different statements of Jesus in this passage. This first Statement: Peace be to you is the gospel when we fail. So the disciples, this is not just that they've kind of royally messed it up, but they have lived through the three most important days in human history from a Christian perspective. The crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. These are not ordinary days. These are big, big days. These are big moments. And how did they respond? Well, they ran away. They cowered in the corner. They verbally denied that they even knew Jesus. I mean, if Jesus was going to be disappointed with anyone, if his primary emotion toward his people was going to be anger toward anyone, you would think this would be the moment. And he's greeting all of his disciples for the first time, and he walks in, and the first thing he says is, Peace be to you. The disciples think they're wondering, what is this kind of greeting going to be from Jesus? What is he going to say first? Because not only to learn that Jesus is raised, which would have been like completely mind-blowing and abnormal, but they're also wondering, now that he's raised and I'm going to see him again, what is his attitude going to be like toward me? I mean, it's kind of scary to think, oh my goodness, I'm glad he's alive, that's exciting, but, like, the last moment I had, I was running away from the cross. I was denying him. What is Jesus going to say to me? And we can relate to the disciples, too, can't we? Every single one of us who has truly believed in Jesus, true faith in Jesus, in a moment in our lives that we can all think about without too much trouble, we can, we can remember moments when we have just utterly messed up. I mean, completely. We were in a situation— and we wanted it to go a way that it was not going. We wanted to control the situation. It did not go well. And our response to not being able to be in control was that we went in a direction of sin. And we kind of lost it. And it was embarrassing. Honestly, it's a spiritual failure. We did not live in light of what we believe. And we messed it up. What are these kind of moments for you that, that produce this kind of, of feeling of failure your lives, these troubles that we respond to with fear, well, we can often think of these, these kind of epic moments in our lives when we, we struggle, we, we fail to respond correctly, and, and in that response to the failure to respond correctly, we then go and we kind of cordon ourselves off from other people. We don't really want to engage with other people in God. These types of things happen all the time. We can think of maybe monumental moments, but it's actually in the mundane things in life. It's in the moments with our 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 friends in the church when we we respond a certain way. it's in the moments with our our spouses uh, when we respond poorly, it's in the moments with our children when we're just we're we're anxiety ridden and we we just don't respond well. It's in these moments when we kind of lose it and we don't respond as we wish we had and I would argue with you that it doesn't take a pandemic or Uh, a school shooting, or some kind of like epic moment for us to find ourselves in this place when we're responding poorly in the moment and we're driven towards anxiety, I would just argue with you that it's kind of our basic life, like we're always facing difficult things, sleepless nights because we have new children, people that we work with that just drive us crazy, and we respond poorly, and so where is Jesus in that, where is he in the failures, not in the, in the epic moments like the disciples are facing, but just in the basic moments of our lives. How does Jesus feel about us? He moves toward us in love. He pursues us when we're in those places where we're trying to hide in our lives. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, this is a normal salutation in the ancient Near East, kind of like, hello. But with Jesus, there's a lot more freight that's coming with that because of this moment that he's speaking in with them. What he's saying is right from the start, I want you to know that you may, he's anticipating, you may expect that I would be angry with you, that I would be filled with disappointment over your response in this moment. But that is not what I'm bringing here today. That is not what I'm bringing In fact, what I'm bringing is I'm bringing peace. I'm bringing peace with you because I love you. Jesus is the father on the road. Jesus is the one telling that parable, and he is the father. He is the one who is there. He is entering in with the disciples to assure them that he is bringing peace and not judgment. In fact, he's assuring them that he didn't go to the cross and he didn't. He wasn't buried in the grave and he wasn't raised from the dead to bring anger and disappointment. He was raised from the dead to bring love that transforms people. You see, Jesus knows that disappointment and anger actually don't really change people, at least in ways that we want to be changed. He knows that love is what changes people. And so he enters in with love to restore his relationship with them. What do we learn about Jesus here? Well, the first thing we learn is that You can never reach a point in your life if you're a child of God where Jesus is going to be done with you. Where you have failed so much spiritually, you have failed so many times spiritually, where Jesus says, You have exhausted my grace. That is just not possible. Because if it was possible, then the disciples would have done it. This would be the moment. This would be the moment, but in this moment, we we learn that Jesus' grace, in fact, is inexhaustible. You cannot out-sin the cross of Christ. You cannot fail too much to not be loved by God. Very practically, when you are filled with fear that your failure is going to keep you from God's love, you need to remind yourself of the gospel. This is the gospel that Christ proclaims to you, is that he loves you and he pursues you in that moment. He forgives you and he brings peace, and not anger or disappointment. The second thing Jesus says to them, he goes even farther. In summary, he says, it is I myself, touch me and see. It is I myself, touch me and see. He actually says it twice. He says it twice. This is the gospel in our scars. The gospel in our scars. So Jesus comes in, and he says, peace be to you. Now, I want you to imagine we've had three deaths in the church this week, fathers who have died. What if my greeting to those people, the very first thing that came out of my mouth when I walked in the room was, peace be to you? And that, that's a little bit odd. I mean, it's a little bit odd. It, it makes you feel like, okay, if this is just a normal person saying that, where's the EQ? All right, Do you, do you kind of get the emotional gravity of this moment, Jesus? Uh, who do you think you are, Jesus? Well, Jesus can say that, and I can say that in a in a tactful way because I represent Jesus. Because Jesus did more than talk about peace. Jesus actually became our peace. Jesus can say, "Peace be to you," because He is the one who brings real peace in our lives. He brought peace to our lives through his death on the cross. He died for our sins. He was raised to newness of life so that we could be healed by him. He had better back up these words with something really powerful and he does. And so Jesus moves toward the disciples even more, even more than saying peace be to you, even more than reassuring them of his love, He says, come and touch me. Come, you who may doubt that I could be raised from the dead. Come to you who may doubt those things that I say about who I am, and I want you to touch my scars. It's very important that we recognize that Jesus didn't just say, come and touch me. He says, come and acknowledge or touch my scars. Feel my scars. Now, why are the scars still there? Well, they're there. One, principally maybe, to, to show us that this really is Jesus. This is really Jesus who died on the cross. It's, it's really him. This is the same Jesus. And he still has these scars. Even in heaven now, he's called the slain lamb. He's still there with scars as we get to the end of this passage, the ascended Lord. He's still there with his scars. Jesus, when he was raised, carried the marks of scarring on his body. But there's more to it than this. It shows us that even though he has scars, those scars were not the most powerful identifying markers in his life. The most powerful identifying marker is that he has a new life. He has a resurrected body. That even though he has those scars, which show this pain that he has been through to be our Savior, he was also resurrected. And we can also learn something about this for our scars as well. You know, you and I, we, the disciples, we all have scars. You carry around perhaps physical scars, but we're scarred in different ways than that. We're scarred emotionally, we're scarred psychologically, we're scarred relationally, we're scarred as parents, we're scarred as spouses, we're scarred as church members, we have scars. And Jesus says, I want you to come close to me and I want you to touch me and I want you to feel my scars. Why? Because he wants us to know that those scars that we have in our lives are not the ultimate identifying marker anymore of who we are. You are not primarily identified as a scarred person. You are primarily identified as someone who is loved and healed by Jesus Christ. Now, those scars in your life are significant for you, whatever those scars are but they're significant not just because they hurt, they're significant because they are also the place of your healing. Wherever you have been scarred, you have been healed. Those are also those places where you have been touched most deeply by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. I am a living witness of this. I have been scarred many times in my life. And yet in those scarred places, that is where I have known the grace of God. That is also, those scars are in some way a pathway or a gateway into being able to love other people with scars. And so Jesus says, come and touch me, come and see me, come and feel me, because I am a healing God. I am a resurrected God. Yes, you have those scars, but now those are marks of my care, and they're marks of my love in your life. They're not just scars. They're not just bare, broken places, Now, I don't want to hyper-spiritualize this. Those scars are still painful. There are days when you feel the pain of the scar more than you feel the redemption of the scar. But the reality is that you have been healed and you have been raised. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You are healed by his grace. And we learn to live in the reality of that, the God who heals us in our scars. This is the Christ that we proclaim We proclaim a gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to the world that your scars don't have ultimate power. That is such good news. The only other option is to walk around as scarred people, and they are your main identifying marker. But through Jesus Christ and through the resurrection, we have been healed. We have been healed of our scars. By his wounds, Isaiah 53, 6, we are healed. The third thing Jesus says to us in this passage is everything that is written about me in the scriptures must be fulfilled. So this is the gospel for the unbelieving, the gospel for the unbelieving. Verse 44, Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus tells us this. He says that all of the scriptures, everything in scripture is unbreakable. It is impossible that scripture would not be fulfilled. And he's looking back, he's showing them in the Old Testament how all of these predictions and these precursors of what he would do. He says all. All of them have been fulfilled in me, and so He's calling them to understand that the Scriptures are unbreakable. Sometimes we doubt that the Scriptures are unbreakable. For honest, we, we read the Bible and we're just like, "Man, really?" I mean, some of the most transformative moments of my of my spiritual life have been when I'm honest enough to read the Bible and just kind of be like, "Hmm." I, uh, I mean, I, I believe that, but that's really hard for me to believe. I believe that. Help my unbelief. Um, The disciples are there too. We're all there. We have moments when we're not filled with only belief. There's some unbelief in there. And Jesus reassures us that everything that is said in the scriptures, and particularly doubles down on anything that's been said about him and his redemptive work, will be fulfilled. Not only in the past, but he's speaking to the disciples about the future. He's about to call them into the future. And he's saying, if all of the scriptures about me in the past have been fulfilled, Then all of the scriptures about me that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled. All those things that are not yet totally taken care of by the beginning of my kingdom, by my cross and my resurrection, I will make good on them. I will fulfill my promises in the days to come. Think of some scriptures that come to mind that talk about Jesus's fulfillment. There's a a fulfillment in the first coming, but it's not yet totally fulfilled. We still need the second coming for them to be fulfilled. Promises like God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that's that's true. God has made a great nation out of what has become the church Israel, but there are still nations that do not yet know of the of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And so there's still a future fulfillment to that, that Jesus promises is unbreakable that it will happen. How about promises like God gave to Isaiah in Isaiah 60, where he says, I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, and your days of sorrow will end. That is a future promise. It is a promise from God that there will be a day when our suffering will end, when terror will be no more and destruction will be no more. The end of violence. We're still waiting on that unbreakable promise to be fulfilled. What about promises like God showed the Apostle John in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, where he said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We have seen some fulfillment of the nations coming in, even into this church and worshiping God together. I love that in some ways Trinity Park is a preview of heaven that I think among all the Christians out there, we will be less surprised about what heaven is like because we've worshiped in a multi-ethnic community that represents the diversity of the body of Christ but we're still not there as the global church. There are still so many people that have not heard the gospel, and so we wait for the unbreakable fulfillment of God's promises. That He will He will temper and meet and quench our unbelief. And He will show us that everything He said is true. Everything. It will all come, it will all come true in Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing that Jesus says to his disciples is this: He says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So this is the gospel for neighbors and nations. And I know that later on we'll have a whole sermon on this. But, but Jesus immediately, and this is very important, after he assures us of his love, after he says, I am healing you and I have healed you, after he promises us that all of the scriptures will be fulfilled about him, he then calls us into mission I find it striking that he calls the disciples into mission in this moment. They haven't even had a chance to process, say they're sorry, tell Jesus what they've learned about all the things that they should have done better. They haven't taken any exams on theology, but he's like, you're going to be my witnesses. You guys, you're going to be my witnesses because I'm calling you out. I'm calling you to follow me. And Jesus sends them out to proclaim his gospel of repentance and forgiveness. Now, normally we think of these, uh, these ideas of repentance and forgiveness as being uh, kind of individualistic things that we do, which they absolutely are. The first response of each disciple who was there in each of us, each and every one of us should be in response to the love of God, that we would repent and that we would receive the forgiveness of God. But Jesus is talking about more than just an individualistic response here. He's certainly talking about an individual response, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about repentance and forgiveness of sins being preached to all nations. He's talking about the collective response that he deserves because he has died on the cross and been raised from the dead. This is not Jesus giving us a postmodern, what's true for you is true for you kind of little moment. You know, you be your best self or, or whatever. No, he's saying, no, no, no. He's saying, I am the Lord. This is the gospel. I have died for your sins personally, and I've died for sin, and I've died to, to proclaim the gospel of repentance and forgiveness to the nations, and he says, I want you to go out and I want you to, to proclaim that gospel to the world. Jesus sends us out to proclaim to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Jesus says, Because I've lived a perfect life and I've died on the cross and I've been raised from the dead, this is truth, this is capital T truth, not just for people who believe it. It's just true. And so you need to go out and it's not just for Jewish people and it's not just for the the collection of people that were there in Jerusalem on that day. It's for all the nations. This, This is good news for the Korean and the Arab. Good news for the Chinese. This is good news for the African American. It's good news for the Latino. It's good news for the Caucasian. It's good news. It's good news for the tribes that have not heard about him. It's good news that he is the true Lord and he's come in order to give us forgiveness if we will repent and embrace the gospel. And it's also important to recognize that Jesus sends us out to proclaim the gospel or sends the disciples out beginning at Jerusalem. Now you need to understand that there's never been a city on earth that at a point in time was more averse to the gospel Then Jerusalem, like five or six days or however long it was after Jesus died on the cross. Like they were, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders were so filled with hate and anger that they killed Jesus unjustly. And now you have a stolen, what they perceive to be a stolen body situation that is making them look really bad. And so the heat cannot be more turned up than it is here. And I mean, you can think about Tehran, you can think about Baghdad, you can think about Mogadishu, you can think about Beijing, you can think about whatever you want, but there's never been a city on earth that has had more vitriol and hatred for Jesus Christ and his followers than Jerusalem, six days or whatever it was after Jesus was killed. And I want you to know that Jesus calls them there to his mission. He calls them there and he says, I love you. And he says, I have healed you And he says, my scriptures are unbreakable and I'm calling you to mission. And the way this is gonna happen is I'm calling you into some dangerous places. Maybe those dangerous places are at your high school or your college. Maybe those dangerous places are at your workplace right now. They're dangerous places. But we learn here that Jesus is not a safety first God. He's not a safety first God. He's a gospel first God not safety first. The reason why he can be that way is because you are ultimately safe. Do you recognize that? That you are ultimately safe. It, it can be well. It is well with your soul if you have Jesus Christ. It is well. No one can make you unsafe ultimately. You are the Lord's. He has you in his hand. He says no one can snatch them out of my hand, And so because you are ultimately safe in the Lord, he can call us into dangerous places knowing that he can take care of us and that he will take care of us there, knowing that if we receive new scars, listen to this, if you receive new scars for following him into those places that are unsafe, that he heals you and he restores you and nothing can have power over you if you are healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he can go visit the prisoner in China. He can go visit the person who is bearing suffering for his name at the workplace. And he tells them, I love you, and I'm with you, and I heal you. And he continues to call us to follow him, just like he went for us to the cross, into places that are not always safe. But he's always there with us to love us in that place. And finally the fifth thing Jesus says to us in this passage which is a really important ending is I am sending you the promise of power from on high. This is the gospel while we wait. The gospel while we wait. So why do we proclaim Christ? Because he loves us. Why do we proclaim Christ? Because he's called us us of all people to follow him on mission. And why do we follow Christ? Why do we proclaim Christ? Because He's giving us everything that we need in order to follow him faithfully. Jesus gives us what we need in his ascension, in his ascension. Now, the ascension is a little taught piece of theology that is actually very important. Because why? Because when Jesus ascends into heaven, he is fulfilling a a way that God has worked throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of his people, where someone who's important goes into the presence of God. And because they are in God's presence in that moment, they then bring the gifts of God back to the people of God. I'll show you a few examples of this, although there are more. In Genesis 32, Jacob goes and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And after he wrestles with the angel of the Lord, God changes his name importantly to Israel. And he becomes the father of God's people. And through that that wrestling match, as as Jacob leaves, he has changed, but he's coming now as a different person. He's leading the people of God in a different way. Think of Moses in Exodus 19 as he goes up on the mountain, and he's in God's presence. And as he's in God's presence, what does he bring back? Famously, he brings back the law. He brings back the Ten Commandments. A man goes up, a representative of God goes up into the presence of God, And comes back giving gifts to God's people that they need to sustain them. Think about the high priest in the Old Testament. Although it's not a literal going up, it is a going into the holiest of holies. The presence of God. And as he goes into God's presence once a year on the day of atonement, he brings back the gift of continued atonement and forgiveness for the people of God. And so the people of God throughout the Old Testament have been waiting on someone who will be the fulfillment of this typology, the fulfillment of who is the ultimate person who's going to go into the presence of God. And as a result of him going into God's presence is going to then give the people of God what they need. And that person who does this uh, most ultimately is Jesus Christ. It wasn't just enough for Jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. It wasn't enough. He needed to go into the heavenly throne room, the holy of holies, the real holy of holies. The, the real holy of holies that the, the holy of holies here was typed after. He needed to go there into the presence of God before the throne room of God and really show the merit of his blood, show the merit there in the heavenly places in his ascension so that as he ascends and, and as God sees, the Father sees what Christ the Son has done, Then, importantly, they together send the Spirit to God's people. It's not until Christ ascends into heaven and fulfills all of those things that God has required of him that God then sends the Holy Spirit, the the Father and the Son, send the Holy Spirit on God's people. Jesus, in his ascension, gives us everything that we need. He gives us more than anyone had in the Old Testament. He gives us the Holy Spirit. In the third membership vow, we say, Do you resolve and promise in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? If you take out the Holy Spirit from that vow, that's not a good thing. (laughs) Because we need the Holy Spirit. We need God with us to enable us to follow him. And as God gives us the Spirit, we are enabled to follow him. Now Jesus has ascended, and you can go on and read in the first chapter of Acts, which is the continuation of Luke, where Jesus ascends, and he's seated on the throne, and he is there, and what is he doing there? He is praying for you. He is praying for you. He is sending out his spirit upon you, continually filling the church. He is listening to our prayers, answering prayer. He is continuing through the power of his spirit to heal and restore and to transform He is the Lord. Even now, he is the ascended Christ reigning for us. And there should be nothing more encouraging for us than that, that as he sends us out to proclaim Christ, he is there giving us everything we need on the journey. So we'll go back to the beginning. How can we be excited about proclaiming Christ? It all has to do with your view of who God is. God is not angry with you. He is not disappointed with you. He is not frustrated with you. He loves you. And because of that, he calls you to follow him. On this journey of faith, to follow him and to be transformed, to experience the healing of all of those scarred places. Maybe you're thinking, I just don't know if he can heal all of my scars. He can, and he is, and he will. All of them. All of them. All will be made new. That is the hope of the gospel. All will be made new. Not just your spiritual life, all of your life. It will all be made new and we can follow him as he is the ascended Christ pouring out his gifts on the church. Let's pray. Lord, how I long that I myself would know what it was like on that day to touch and see that you are the resurrected Christ. Lord, we long to be a people who are so acquainted with your suffering and your resurrection and your scars that we ourselves would experience the love that you have for us as your people. It was your love for your Father. It was your love for us that held you to the cross. Lord, you died that we would receive your love and your forgiveness. And so I pray for anyone here who is struggling to experience your love, struggling to believe your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that every one of your promises in scripture is unbreakable to us. Most importantly, your promise that you love us, you love sinners, and you forgive sins. It is true. I pray that we would believe it, we would be healed, and we would go out and we would share this good news with the world. I pray in Jesus' name.